Good morning! I'm Dave Kale, and I'm bringing to you the brand new episode of The Film Film Project. I feel like we were just here 12 hours ago, and that's because we just gave you another Riddles in the Dark, but thankfully, this is going to be a much more positive episode. <laughs> this, it this would almost have to be. About, <laughs> this, time, this week, we're talking about Valinor, and this one's going to be a fun one. So, without further ado, let's get started. I am joined, as always, by the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, and the Tolkien maven, Trish Lambert. And uh, good to – I'm, I'm pretty excited I get to spend all this time with you guys, like yeah. two more hours within a 12-hour period. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's I'm, great, huh? This has been a fun week for that reason. Um, absolutely. So, right. um, so yeah, yeah, two, we will um, – very different episodes in terms of character. <laughs> yes, very, <laughs> very different, very different. Of course, just for those of you who uh, haven't heard it yet, who didn't attend live or haven't listened to it yet, um, the, the illusions we're making is to the fact that we spent a good deal of time panning the Battle of Five Armies last night um, as uh, I – is very strong. Really, all of us, mostly. I think Trish. Yeah. I think Trish disliked it least strongly least. of the three of right. us. Right. <laughs> right. Which is really the most that we can say. That's the um, best we can say. Yeah. 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 A ringing endorsement. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's that's uh, that's what we're alluding to when we're when we're talking about that. But anyway, that's in the past. We're now focusing on a positive I, thing. Can't... Onto our own thing that somebody else yeah. can pan in the future. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now we're focusing. Now we're focusing on the future or very, very distant past. Yeah, and of course, to me, probably the most lingering, um, the the most dangerous sort of lingering negative after effect of of the of our review of the Battle of Five Armies is it left me feeling almost unconscionably smug. Uh, because of course, <laughs> going over what actually happens in the Battle of Five Armies and comparing it to all of our discussions in Riddles in the Dark, I came away uh, just absolutely confirmed that uh, had we been left to actually plan it, we would have made a much better film than Peter Jackson did. And in particular, you know, like our our the, our, the, our sort of pet storyline about the death of Radagast, uh, you know, Saruman betraying and killing Radagast and Gandalf getting his staff, and would have been so much of a better story than what actually happened uh, in the film. So anyway, so yeah, I'm feeling all like, oh, see, <laughs> we're pretty good at this thing now. So let's go with uh, with with great confidence now. Let's move forward in the Silmarillion project. Uh, you know, so we'll now be like the Silm Film Project subtitle. At least it's better than what Peter Jackson came up with. So okay, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's our that's our tagline. Right? That's, 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 that's our tagline. We call that setting the bar high. Anyhow, okay, so um, let's let's forget all that. Now we're talking we're back to some film projects. So last time you will remember, two weeks ago, we were discussing the epi- episode six of the of season one, which was the destruction of the lamps. And I want to the main thing I want to do here at the beginning is just kind of review where we ended up. We were a little bit rushed at the end last time, and I felt like we came to a really good place. But I want to make sure that that it's that not only the actual events of the end of the episode, but sort of the larger implications of the end of the episode are are kind of clear um, in our in our minds. Yeah, Brian, 
Fatterini is uh, is uh, 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 whispering in my ear. Remember, thou art mortal. Yeah. Well, I'm not exactly on my Roman triumph parade yet, uh, uh, Brian. So uh, it's a, but but I appreciate the gesture. That's that that's that's still important. Anyhow, okay. So at the end of the last episode, we we had settled. I think we had settled on the concept, which was suggested by you guys from the on the discussion boards, of connecting the uh, destruction of the lamps with the fall of the Balrogs, which is an idea that I still just love more and more the more I think about it. Um, it seems to me the perfect time uh, to you know, since we had uh, we had suggested doing the unfallen beautiful Balrogs at the beginning. We had to have them fall at some point, and the destruction of the lamps. It just seems to me an absolutely perfect opportunity to have that fall, and especially since it's associated with fire and everything. It's just it's just perfect, brilliant, brilliant idea, and I love it. So. Um, so the fall of the Balrogs, but of course the critical question is what exactly, well, okay, the two critical and related questions are what exactly is Melkor's involvement in the, in the destruction of the lamps and what exactly is the perception or the understanding of Melkor's involvement in the minds of the rest of the Valar. Um, so let me, let me start off and you guys can, can, can tell me whether like, do you think I'm messing up what we did last time or if anything else needs to be explained or what, but I'm going to, I'm just going to summarize where I felt we ended last time. And that was that Melkor is actually, so privately Melkor is ticked off at the rest of the Valar. Like he feels that, you know, they're not really respecting his lordship and his sovereignty. He feels that he owns the lamps. He feels that he is obviously the master of the rest of the Valar or should be accepted as the master of the rest of the Valar. And he's getting disgruntled that they are not giving him his due. He feels like he's being done wrong and he wants um, so he, he, he has this sort of desire to strike out at the lamps, but he doesn't just want to rebel. He doesn't just want to declare war and attack them all. Um, so the Balrogs are the ones who do it. Um, I don't think they do it under his orders because he wants it. He wants to maintain, you know, Melkor is devious. Um, and even with his own servants, he's not going to take his servants entirely. You know, the Balrogs are his followers. They're his people. But he's not going to take them completely into his confidence. That's just not, um, that's just not how he is. It's not who he is. It's not how he operates. He's a loner. Um, so. Sort of. Not exactly. Um, kind of. But yeah, I mean, he's gonna, he's gonna basically, you know, we can have a, a, a sort of a scene with him and he who is going to become Gothmog and, uh, or, you know, or maybe, maybe a bunch of the Balrogs, one of whom, um, can be, uh, Aryan. And, um, and he, he sort of makes his displeasure known and, 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 and voices some of his frustrations. Though again, he's saying this not in a, like now I am showing my true evil side, but sort of just sort of expressing his grievance and how he's being done wrong and, and, uh, his like sort of more in sorrow than in anger frustration at the rest of the Valar and, and it's then the Balrogs which can sort of perhaps appear to overreact. Um, uh, you know, and, and he, and they will, uh, you know, and th- they decide that in protest, essentially, they're going to destroy the lamps. Um, and so they do, Aryan refuses, right? And she rebels and comes back. So she is able to report to the rest of the Valar 
that the Balrogs are doing this. Have maybe she comes back just as they're about to do this, and so we can actually have some drama of like them attempting to stop the Balrogs but failing to stop the Balrogs, and the Balrogs destroy destroy the lamps, and they change. Um, in in the destruction of the lamps, their form changes, and they be and they lose their wings, uh, and they become the creatures of shadow and flame uh, that we all know and love. Um, then they come back and they report to Melkor, and it is it becomes clear, you know, it it is it is sort of privately affirmed between him and Gothmog, uh, you know, again that wonderful scene that we were picturing at the end where Gothmog comes and and tells and tells Melkor that he's destroyed the lamps, and Melkor, you know, uh, pulls a small smile and says, "Excellent." Um, He's glad that it's done, but he didn't order it. You know, he maneuvered them into doing it, but he didn't do it himself. And he's maintained more than simply deniability, um, but can actually say that he, you know, can, 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 can say that this was never his plan. But we see that it really was his desire. But the other Valar don't really, don't really know this. They probably have their suspicions, though. So some people on the discussion boards were were suggesting there should be act- some actual like pursuit of Melkor, or like uh, um, several people were talking about like an actual physical confrontation, like you know some kind of like you know wrestling match of some sort, you know some some kind of physical confrontation between Melkor and Tolkis, for instance. At this point, I don't think it's time for that yet. I, I agree there should be something like that prior to the war at the end, but I don't think that that should be yet. Um, I think that now the Valar are still at a point of suspicion. Discord has happened, right? Where we are, you know, where we're left at the end of episode six, at the beginning of episode seven, is the world now in chaos, right? The beautiful, uh, you know, sort of valley, you know, area of Almerin destroyed and in flames and, um, and upheaval sort of spreading outwards throughout the world. I mean, we can show kind of, you know, chaos and imbalance, um, in lots of places. And I think that rather than this being the thing that plainly reveals Melkor's hand to the Valar, this should be like, their suspicion of Melkor is only one of the tensions and discords that we see going on. Um, so anyway, I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I'm beginning to veer towards discussing about just, you know, the episode seven stuff and where we go into from today. Um, but again, I, that's so, so, so again, I want to make it clear. He has not openly declared himself the enemy of the Valar, though we do see him beginning to work against them in the, in the destruction of the lamps. That's the first moment, um, when he actually is acting, though as yet still indirectly and by guile, um, but he's still now acting as the as the enemy of the Valar. That's why I think that episode six is really a turning point, because it's the point at which, although not, not everybody realizes it yet, and although he's not openly doing it yet, he is now actively working in opposition to the rest of the Valar. Um, but again, they don't realize it yet. They don't re- they don't know that it's him. Though some are the, some are going to suspect, and some of them perhaps more strongly than others. Um, but. Uh, but again, the real culprits make him look bad because they're his people who are the real culprits. Um, but he can still sort of swear off and claim that they that they re- that they were rebelling against it. Um, so is that does that sound right? Does that anything that you guys would want to further clarify or add to that? 
Um, no, I don't think so. I, did we want to talk about some of the? Are you going to talk about what some of the people covered in discussion about that topic or some things? Yeah, and you can feel free to to raise some of the things that you thought sort of especially especially important there. Well, I mean, Brian just reminded me too that you know the talk because you know, I was talking about this before we went on air about um, the first of all there was the thought that there could be a lot of confusion about who among the Valar might be responsible. Yes. And that suspicion could fall on Ase, for example, that this could, uh, you know, or, or there was an idea that this could culminate in Ase's rebellion to somehow, you know, have this tie into Ase in some right. way. Right. I, so. I, I don't want to make Ase as central a figure as that. Um, that is, I would, I, my own thought there is that Ase's rebellion should not be seen as sort of this, or you know, even be suspected as being like related to the central thread. It's a, Ase's rebellion is like a repercussion rather than a uh, like Ase's rebellion is a sign of discord spreading outwards like ripples in the pond. Right. Um, I, I, I wouldn't want to see, like, Ase in the frame for the lamps themselves, or even implicated in that. He doesn't have anything to do with them. I mean, he's... I think, and also, I think his rebellion will have, will have more power if that, if it's not immediately connected to this. If it, if it's, if, if, you know, they, things like settle down and they finally address this lamp situation, and they're like, alright, well, at least we took care of that, and now everything can go back to normal, and then, you know, next thing you know, now Ase is rebelling. Um, uh, yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. As uh, David Baxter says, I'd also be afraid of getting to a point where Ase is simply a red herring. I agree. I wouldn't want to make Ase a red herring. I would want, I I would want to make, you know, him the gen, the genuine centerpiece of his story rather than just him being falsely suspected. But Marie Prosser asks a great question, which is is there going to be suspicion only against Melkor? Um, that is to say, if, if we're going to have some doubt, we have to actually think about what are the other theories going to be, right? I mean, when the Valar among themselves or even privately are kind of assessing, okay, what just happened here with the destruction of the lamps, what are the options? I mean, I guess the sort of the most obvious explanation which will present itself to everybody is that the the Balrogs have just gone rogue, right? You know that that they just did this on their own and and they apparently are bad. But even that requires an explanation, right? Um, and I kind of think that the, I mean, because in a sense, there's no mystery to what happened with the lamps, right? Arya knows that the Balrogs are going to do it, um, and they can even be seen doing it. I mean, they can even be witnessed doing it, uh, and and their transformation too can be witnessed. Right, because I think that lamps lamps being destroyed will actually cause their transformation. Right, right, exactly. Um, so, 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 like I said, in that sense, there's no there, there isn't really any mystery or even doubt about what exactly happened. The question is just. Not only why did it happen, that's a question too, but also in a bigger sense, like what does it mean? If you see what I mean? Um, does this mean that, cause the Balrogs going around doing bad things on their own, even if that's what were really happening, 
would itself be a bad sign. I mean, remember, we're not talking about... Uh, you can't just say like, oh, well, so it turns out that the Balrogs are are evil because we don't have that category, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we're talking about a, a, a golden age. We don't have any villains yet. Um, the whole concept of somebody being a villain and not working as a constructive part of the overall team, um, that's not on the table, really. I mean, this will be the first example of somebody actually... You know, not just kind of, we've had examples of people not really understanding each other, right? Not really getting each other. We had the one conflict with the, the only, the, the only one who has yet raised even the category of, uh, of villain is Ungoliant, right? Um, and Karita has just brought that up that, you know, we could just blame things on Ungoliant. And it's true. We, she is the only sort of legitimate bad guy. In the minds of the Valar. I mean, I think that's the thing that's kind of shocking in episode five is the idea that there is a bad guy, right? Um, that recognition, that may be why, um, why Nessa, um, goes along with her. You know, the more I was thinking about that, by the way, the more I was thinking she probably shouldn't even be captured. She should just like be invited to like, you know, meet Ungoliant and Ungoliant invites her along and they just start hanging because Nessa would be totally unsuspicious. Why would she suspect that Ungoliant meant her harm, you know? Um, I mean, again, that's not even on the radar screen, that whole concept. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's, um, uh, right. Brian Fatterini brings up the really important general question, um, about how naive do we make the Valar seem? Um, and as Brian says, if the Balrogs do something really actively rebellious and destructive, um, there have to be uh, repercussions for Melkor, for their view of Melkor, right? I mean, if his people are acting like this, it's got to say something about him, right? And then you add in the fact that they remember the Discord perfectly well, right? They they were all there in the music. Um, mm-hmm. So the question but was... they won't necessarily have... They won't have knowledge of what that means. In other words, Discord in the music... I would think, you know, could be something, you know, I could see the Angolian thing being, oh, that's a discord. You know, I mean, in other words, they won't know necessarily how, let's see, the degree, you know, what does that mean? What does a discord mean? Does it just mean people squabbling? Does it just mean, you know what I mean? They're going to still not know that. Uh, it, that's what I'm thinking. It's like, they're, this is a learning process for the Valor. I mean, Angolian is a single agent, you know, okay, she's bad. Now we've got basically the archetypal Hell's Angels, you know, working together as a group, doing something bad. So that's another learning experience for the Valor. And and I still don't, I mean, you know, Melkor could go all saucer-eyed and, and shrug his shoulders like, I don't know, I don't know what happened. I don't, you know, yeah, they hang out with me, but I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't have any control over them. <laughs> I was Surprise, totally not there. Surprised if you are. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, so I'm thinking, you know, the discord, I mean, and I, maybe this is like a learning process of what, what the discord really means, because I don't think they get it yet. Yeah. You know, I don't think they get the, the extreme that this is going to get to. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, I, I, I have, um, I have, well, I'll come back to this in a second. I have I have a couple thoughts about that too, but but I agree with that general principle that they don't, as Brian Yoder was just saying, um, that you know perhaps the Ainur are kind of unclear how to interpret 
the Discord. Um, yeah, I mean, remember that the Aino Indole gives us as readers a kind of overview which the Valar themselves don't all necessarily have. Uh, we're told that they don't really understand, you know, they understand the, you know, the part of the mind of, a, you know, like basically they understand their own part, right? Um, so I'm sure there are many of the spirits involved in the music of the Valar who, um, the music of the Ainur, um, who are aware that there is discord, right? You know, who can, t- who, who, who are participating in this music, but just don't really get what's going on, right? Um, that's why we're told some of them fall silent, right? And that's what I can imagine is some of them just being confused and being like, what is going on? Um, anyway, uh, but, but as I said, I, I want to kind of come back to that a little bit later on when we talk, cause I, we're going to be soon talking about kind of the overall trajectory, how we're going to get from here to the battles at the end. And I kind of want to think about this in that particular context. Um, Brian Federini is, is making a, a strong argument that there should be doubt about what exactly happened. And, uh, uh, Brian makes some really good points here, um, and it, you're kind of winning me over to this idea, Brian. What it could because here's the thing that I like: if they if nobody does witness what actually happens, Aryan can come and tell them, like, "OMG, my other friends, the Balrogs, are like have all gone mad, and they're going to destroy the lamps," and the Valar can just be like, "Um, what? Like." Who would do that? Like, why would anyone do that? How would they do that? And then the lamps get destroyed, and Aryan is like, see, I told you. But Melkor can come back and be like, it's so sad that Aryan went bad like that. Right? He can be claiming that she's the one who is corrupt, not the not the other Balrogs. If they're not seen, especially if they're, like, actually concealed so that nobody sees so that the Valar don't see that they have become spirits of shadow and flame and now look like demons instead of like angels. Um, if, if they don't actually, if they see, if they don't see the act and they don't see the Balrogs and what has happened to them, and he can just be like, ah, yes, like my, uh, you know, my beautiful Balrogs suffered, uh, you know, they're, they're victims now. They're victims of the catastrophe, right? Um, they were, they were, they were horribly injured, uh, in the destruction of the lamps. Maybe Aryan herself conspired to bring down the lamps for some reason. That is, he, he can point the finger at her and say that she's the one who went rogue rather than the other Balrogs. Hmm. So, Brian, that's what I'm kind of, that, that's the angle that, that I'm kind of liking about your suggestion. Uh, cause that, creates more confusion, more legitimate confusion, and it would seem, and, and certainly enables people, if anybody buys that, then it enables them not to be just totally suspicious of Melkor. Because I agree, it is really hard to explain how is it that the Balrogs as a unit, with only one exception, could go bad if Melkor wasn't bad. Um, th- I mean, that's just, that seems a little too cut and dried. So if we do have that kind of mystery to it, um, uh, see, well, uh, Karita asks, who would buy that? Well, you mean who would buy that about Aryan? Well, but we've just had Ungoliant, right? So she, she's, she's just like another Ungoliant, right? Except just in a better disguise. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. So that was um, a pretty nice idea. And and I mean, it's not going to be believed by everybody. There'll be many who would side with Arian, um, and who would suspect. I mean, I think having there be rampant suspicion of Melkor is fine here. Um, they're just, uh, but I, but I think it probably is better if we avoid certainty, not just have everybody have all evidence pointing towards him and yet him maintain deniability. That doesn't seem strong enough. Um, but if he's kept himself distant, has a, a, a sort of a plausible counter story and basically gives others who don't suspect him or don't want to suspect him somewhere to sort of stand. Um, uh, so there's an interesting question that, that again, Brian brought up. Um, do we, should the audience know exactly what happened? Yes, I think so. I think so. I think that the audience's relationship with Melkor should not be one of uncertainty. That is, they should see, we should be showing them his struggles. We should enable the audience to be, in a sense, sympathetic to Melkor, sympathetic in the sense of understanding his rationale, under you know, seeing his mindset, um, knowing how he looks at things, and yet seeing how that is leading him down this path path, but they should be seeing the path that he's going down. Um, so, yes, that does mean that the audience, we have to recognize that we're telling this story from the context of the audience knows more than the Valar do. But that I think that that has to be the case because that is, I mean, think of, thinking of the frame, right? This is a story that Elrond is telling to Estelle. Elrond knows how this story ends, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he knows all about Morgoth and the Darkening and everything else and the Wars of the Silmarils and, and the rise of Sauron and everything else, right? So he knows where this story is headed. So, um, <clears throat> therefore, for us to tell the story as if the story or the storyteller, as if there were some uncertainty, and he's not gonna, he's not gonna, mess around with Estelle to that extent either. So I think um, having that kind of a focus where it's 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 pretty clear that, um, you know, where it's headed. But again, but there is some interest in our seeing Melkor's side of things. Yes. In as much as we want to understand how he goes bad and, and, and sort of what exactly happens there. But, um, but yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Our 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 listeners are like like right up right in sync with us. David Baxter just asked that question of Does the audience feel that Melkor can be redeemed? I I think I think at least for the for the for this season, and maybe even the next few, I think I think Melkor is going to be like a a, a relatable um, villain in some sense. Yes, I mean I I, like, I do especially especially to modern people who kind of love this love stories of like you know um, of um, uh, uh, you know like the redeemable bad guy and anti heroes and disestablishment people and stuff. Like I think I think that's definitely true. Right, and it's you know and the point is not to like undermine the evilness of Melkor. You know, it's not to like yeah. make Melkor less evil and make him into some kind of hero. Um, exactly. But the point is, basically, I think, in my mind, the point is to do justice to the complexity of Tolkien's moral landscape. Um, there is a sense in which we all should sympathize with. Tolkien invites us to sympathize with the bad guys in the sense of understanding 
how they got there, right? You know, I mean, when you think about characters like Saruman, Denethor, Boromir, what we see in all of them is somebody who ends up walking down this path for good reasons and able to justify to themselves what they do at every point. Um, we want our viewers to be sort of part of that. I mean, if we end up having them cheering for Melkor against the Valar, I, I think we've failed. Um, but we should have them basically... I think that the... Remember that wonderful scene in the Silmarillion after Feanor rebels and we go back, you know, it's the, uh, the, the conversation with Manwe and Mel, and Mandos, right? When Mandos, uh, uh, you know, the and yet remain evil, uh, conversation, right? Mm-hmm. And the emphasis that Tolkien makes is the primary reaction to the rebellion of Feanor, uh, in, in Valinor is not wrath, is not outrage, you know, it's not, it's grief, right? They're mourning for the marring of Feanor. And mm-hmm. I feel like if we succeed, that's what we, that's what we have our viewers doing, right? Yes. Absolutely. Our viewers' relationship with Melkor should be one of, of, they should that be looking is... at, at, at him like Nienna, basically, mourning for, right. like, the fall of this, you know, it's, it's, it's tragic. It's tragic, and 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 really having that tragic and fe- having that tra- having people feel that tragedy, I think is what we can really, really, sort of show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. So so yeah so and so this is also so this is why I don't want to have him being simply Machiavellian for me because you're right, Dave. He should never just be like a. You know, I do evil things for the sake of doing evil because I think evil is fun kind of villain. Mm-hmm. Like, he just should never be that way. He should, if anything, he errs on the side of, like, self-righteousness, I think. Um, right. You know, that he really believes he's the best, morally the best, you know, in power the best. And mm-hmm. just can't believe that everybody continues to refuse to just submit to him who is obviously the best and wisest of all um, you know and they just like have to be taught a lesson and I'm, I'm thinking that we should I mean Sauron should figure not figure into necessarily destruction of the lamps but figure into what you were just saying which is that Sauron is like soaking up that stuff like a sponge in other words, you know, Melkor's attitude, and he absolutely gets it and agrees with Melkor and is, like, right there and, you know, you know, it's like, because we're going to need to show his process as well. And I, even though the spotlight's not necessarily on him now, I, I think we don't want to have him be absent completely from this. I mean, he can visually be there. It doesn't need to really take even dialogue necessarily, I suppose. Um, but that's another one. I mean, he could have something to do with the lamps, but I don't, I don't. I mean, I think the Balrogs are fine by themselves. Yeah, yeah. I, Sauron, I'm not really sure how to play Sauron because, I d- on the one hand, I don't want to overplay him too soon, right? I don't mm-hmm. want him to become like a stealth protagonist or like stealth anti... I mean, he's still a minor figure, right? He's just an understudy. Right. Um, and he's right. going to be important later on and we need to set him up and his rela- and the sort of the way in which he's following. But, you know, I don't even think that we need to necessarily see him kind of taking notes because what ultimately what we're going to do is we're going to establish that through parallels, right? By showing him walking the same path or a very similar path to the one that 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 well, Melkor trod before we him. Have him. 
I mean, actually, the audience could probably just totally get the fact that he would be made like the you know first lieutenant and have his tower. You know, in other words, set up that Melkor is going to be promoting him anyway, right later on down the line when yeah. you know during Luthien and stuff. So maybe we don't. Yeah. I just. You know, it was, I, I was just thinking it might be a little strange to have him there, you know, and then he disappears completely, and then he's back again as, you know, his new character, sort of. Well, I don't, I don't think he would, I don't think he's, I don't think he's going to be there in sufficiently prominent fashion as to, um, such that that would be a problem, right? Like, he's not going to be there in a noticeable way where we're introducing him and saying, hey, no, no, here's Sauron, he's an important character, so that no. so that if he doesn't play a significant role down the road, people will notice. I think he's going to be like an Easter egg at this point, right? Like, he's going to be kind there, of. and, um, and like, like, astute viewers who know the books will say, oh, hey, that's Sauron, that's interesting, and people who don't will not notice him until eight right. seasons later when they're like... Isn't he my run at the Exactly, game? especially since he's not even going to have the name. I mean, nobody. I mean, goodness. You're talking three-quarters of the people, at least three-quarters of the people who have read Tolkien aren't going to recognize Myron when yeah, when he comes right. on. I mean, it's only going to well, be just, by slow process that they're going to figure right. that out. I was just thinking, you know, as you said about, as we were talking about Melkor, we're going to have the same issue with Sauron at some point. You know, I mean, or, or are we just, you know, I mean, I, we could talk about it later, but I mean, I, are we just going to have him, like, just show up and just already be evil? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, the difference... I'm just wondering if there's any seeds we need to be planting now. Yeah, Even yeah. if it's subtle stuff. You know? No, it's a really good question. Um, especially since, you know, I, I'm mindful of the comment that uh, Tolkien makes in the um, in the Valaquenta about how Sauron was only less evil in that for a long time he served another. Right? Right. Um, right. So... That it, so, in other words, his submission, his genuine submission and honest loyalty to Melkor, um, I think should be an important part of Sauron's character. Um, so for him, I think it's less that we need to show him treading the path into evil and more that we need to see him becoming Follow. loyal to, to Melkor. Like, how does Melkor win him over? Because he's, he's, he's one of Aule's. Maya. He's not one of Melkor's people. So he's going to defect from Aule to Melkor. And uh, so it's... I feel like the challenge is really expressing his shift in loyalty rather than expressing his turn to the dark side, exactly. But my question... And we don't have to resolve this now. I mean, Sauron is a... a He could be an extra in the background. He should still kind of physically be there. He should should come up. I mean, I do think he should be present. Um... And and we had mentioned maybe last time, maybe the time before, having Sauron play a role in the Aule and the Dwarves scene. Um, when we get to the Aule and the Dwarves episode, because having an having an Aule centered episode would be a great time to have Myron have a speaking part and do some more stuff in a pretty organic way, especially right. since if he's involved and in like the shady thing. Be the time, be the time that Myron defects because he's it, so annoyed that Aule, you know, it could be then. It could be then. Yeah. That's that was that's the the question I would throw out, not necessarily for resolution right now because it's not urgent for today's episode. But when does Sauron defect? Do we think? When would we want him to defect? We could do that. And, and let me just say parameters. <clears throat> Remember, the first time we need Sauron, it's not going to really even be until Baron and Luthien that we need Sauron. Um, yep. I mean, 
he's he doesn't do anything. We could have him earlier, but he's not. He doesn't play a role in a in a story explicitly until then. So well, I kind of one, one possibility with him is 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 to set him up as Myron, then later on have Sauron appear and have a big reveal that that is actually Myron. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We could. We could. Um. Uh. As far and I think as far as fall arc goes for him, I think his most interesting story is going to be his most like like his sort of story of a fall. I think is most interest will be most interesting um, later, right? When he when he like because sets himself up. Like we could we could we could do the whole Anatar story as. Rather than as this is evil Sauron from the beginning, that there could be sort of an initial beginning where, like, actually he was he was in truth like actually trying to help, and really thought he was a good guy and was going to try and help Middle Earth, and then does his own fall then. So, yeah, so I don't think we have to necessarily. Yeah, we can, we can I don't think we have to front load his story, right? That's true, and we can do it as a flashback too. I mean, we could show his fall as a flashback, right? I mean, in terms of, in other words, like you guys are saying, he comes up further down the line in our storytelling. But explaining his fall could be a flashback at that time. Well, right. And remember, we're not doing one unified narrative, right? I mean, it would Mm -hmm. be the easiest thing in the world to later on, if we wanted to, um, before the Baron and Luthien story, for instance, just have somebody like, uh, you know, it could still be Aragorn, though he's probably teenage Aragorn by this time, or adolescent Aragorn, um, asking Elrond, like, what's Sauron's story? You know, yeah, and then we go back. And and, Is he around? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so I, you know, basically that could be the like, who is this Sauron guy, and where did he come from? You know, prior to Baron and Luthien, and we could just tell that story as a separate standalone story, um, yeah. conceivably. Um, actually, it probably makes more sense than even dealing with it right now because we have too many other, too many other people that we're needing to sort of attend to at this point in the. At the end right. of the series. One other possibility that I would throw out there, and I, but I, don't, I won't dwell on it any longer, is I was just thinking maybe we could actually integrate the defection of Myron into the time in season two when um, Melkor is at large in Valinor. Like, while he is also... Um, so we could, we could almost sort of have... Sauron and Feanor be kind of foils for each other in, to some extent. You know, have Melkor kind of working on both of them in Valinor. Um, mm, good idea. Just a just a possibility to throw out there. But um, note that for later. Yeah, yeah, much later, like next year this time. Um, <laughs> so, so thank, Thanksgiving 2016. This is what we'll be talking about. Um, so okay. Anyway, all right. Um, but. Back focus to so I think we're I think we're we're in a good place in thinking about Melkor's character and where he is. Um, I, I I I think I'm I I mean I'm I would would you guys agree with accepting um, Brian's suggestion that we have the actual fate of the lamps be in doubt so that we can have finger pointing in different directions and and I like uh, that yeah I do yeah okay all right it's a great idea. so 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 so. That's where we'll be for the beginning of this episode. All right, so 
there are some bigger questions that we need to work out. But before we do that, as always, we interrupt the middle of this episode with announcements. Um, uh, Brought to you by Signum University. <laughs> absolutely. The biggest Signum University announcement for this week is uh, our spring classes, the uh, the posting of our spring classes. Um we are having we are running four classes this coming spring. We are running uh the um uh the invented languages class uh, w- uh with uh Dr. Andrew Higgins um as uh, along with Carl Hotstetter and Dimitri Fimi. Um this is going to be a great class. All of you people who have been wanting to study Elvish to take, you know, Quenya and Sindarin classes you're going to get your chance here. Carl Hostetter is going to be doing a bunch of the uh, the Elvish language classes. Um, Carl is one of the one of the greatest living experts on Tolkien's invented languages. Um, uh, of course, uh, uh, Andrew Higgins and Dimitri Fimi have just are just publishing an edition of Tolkien's uh, essay on a secret vice that is on his uh, on his invented languages. Um, this course is not only going to be it's not just going to be a learn Elvish class, um, though you will be able to. To, uh, you will be able to learn Elvish in this class, um, but it's going to be even, even sort of more broadly a look at invented languages, not only Tolkien's invented languages, but some other in, uh, sort of invented fantasy languages, and thinking about that whole process of language invention and the connection between language invention and sub-creation. Um, just a, a, a really great opportunity to kind of think about that entire element of Tolkien's whole sub-creative process. Um, so I, it's, it's just a, just a really wonderful opportunity. Um, such a, such a, a fantastic opportunity for, uh, this is exact. this is the kind of class I could never teach. Like I am not, I, you know, I, I not only, uh, Carl Hostetter, of course, uh, Dimitri Fimi and, and, and Andrew Higgins know so much more about Tolkien's languages than I do. Um, I, you know, so I am really excited to see this class be offered and, and to give people the opportunity and you know, see people have the opportunity to really be able to study this kind of thing. So, um, that's going to be really, really fun. So, so that's one of our classes. Um, uh, Doug Anderson is going to be teaching, you know, this is, so this is, Douglas Anderson, the, uh, the, the, the author of The Annotated Hobbit and, uh, you know, just one of the, one of the greatest pure scholars in the Tolkien studies world, um, is just an amazing resource, uh, Doug Anderson is. He's gonna be teaching a class called The Inklings in Science Fiction. Um, he's gonna be looking at basically sort of that, peer, that, 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 wonderful period of science fiction right in the in the middle of the 20th century and he's going to be looking at it from the lens of Lewis and Tolkien not only their own uh, uh science fiction thoughts and efforts that is thinking about uh Tolkien's lost road and Numenor stuff um and you know, which which you may or you know may or may not remember is explicitly for Tolkien a time travel story and a response to uh, sort of a science fiction challenge, essentially. Um, and Lewis's space trilogy as well, which, uh, again, they were deliberately engaging um, with uh, what they, of course, would have called scientific fiction. Um, but it's not just going to be a look at their own works, but it's going to be looking at the context um, that is l- looking at the science fiction works that they had just been reading and were interacting with and responding to, and then also some of the science fiction works um, that they were then continuing to read and think about after uh, they read and published their stuff. A lot of people don't know, for instance, that like Tolkien, uh, Tolkien read Asimov. He read a lot of Asimov. He liked Asimov. So, um, you know, that's something that a lot of people don't know about Tolkien. I didn't know that. That's yeah, yeah, he did. He did. 
Um, so anyhow, uh, so so it, it's going to be a really cool uh, look at that sort of uh, you know that 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 really important epoch of uh, of science fiction development um, through the lens of the Inklings of uh, of of Lewis and Tolkien especially. So anyway, so that's going to be a and and again just being able to do this with Doug Doug. Um, Doug knows more than any other human being, I think, in the world about sort of fantasy and science fiction and their development over the course of the 20th century. I, I, you know, d- d- the 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 depth and detail of Doug's learning on these points are are just always to me quite staggering. Um, uh, so that's our second class. Our third class, um, I am offering a, a class, a another installment of my modern fantasy class, uh, which I taught for the first time back in 2012, uh, summer of 2012. Um, so I'm looking forward to doing that one again. And that's just basically a kind of, not exactly a survey, more of a sampling um, of modern fantasy, a few uh, from the uh, from the mid '80s. By by modern, I mean like post-Tolkien fantasy. Um, so I'm going to be looking at a couple different trends in uh, in post-Tolkien fantasy. Uh, I'm going to be looking at so a few quite recent ones, um, a few uh, a few uh, sort of uh, as as it's a kind of mid '80s fantasy. Um, uh, I want to put in a plug for that one because I think this, these modern fantasy courses are a great way to get introduced to new writers. Like I, that's how I actually ended up reading Dresden was the, when I took modern fantasy from you the first time. Right. Um, so I think I just recommend it for anybody if you've got these books or just want to get into some new authors that you haven't delved into before. This is a great opportunity to do that. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna. I'm gonna look at uh, so the authors. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be covering six books. Um, I'm gonna cover. Uh, we're going to talk about, let's see, the three older ones are uh, David Eddings, The Belgariad. We're going to do the first two books of The Belgariad because they're short. Nice. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm really excited about that one. Um, we're going to look at uh, uh, Anne McCaffrey's Dra- Dragon Riders of Pern. We're going to look at the uh, Dragonflight, the first volume of the Dragon Riders of Pern. Um, and we're going to look at Dagger Spell by Catherine Kerr. Um, the first volume of Catherine Kerr's Devery series, um, which I think is a is a hugely underrated uh, series, from, you know, classic series from the '80s, which which never got as much play as I think it deserves. Um, uh, and then there's um, uh, then the, the sort of the more recent ones we're going to do. Um, we're going to look at uh, the Furies of Calderon, volume one of Jim Butcher's uh, uh, Codex Alera. We're going to look at Hard Magic, Volume 1 of the Grim Noir Chronicles by Larry Correa. Um, both of those two being really interesting fantasy alternate history uh, 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 concepts, basically. Um, and then, finally, we're going to read Patrick Rothfuss's Name of the Wind. So, that's what we're going to be covering in Modern Fantasy. It's called Modern Fantasy 2, only... Uh, for purely clerical reasons, it has no other connection. There's no prerequisite. It will not rely in any way. It's just another modern fantasy class, this time with completely different books. So, um, anyone who took it before can take it again. If you haven't taken the old one, it's fine. Uh, you know. So, and, and then our fourth class is we're offering our Latin one class this semester again. So, um, uh, so. Uh, if you have, uh, if you want to learn Latin, it's, this is our, our 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 language class that we have definitely scheduled uh, for the spring. So, 
that's our semester this term. As Brian says, an exciting, exciting semester. Yeah, yeah, it should be a really fun semester. Uh, I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to. It. I'm looking forward to teaching modern fantasy again. Uh, that should be that should be a lot of fun. Um, but uh, uh, okay. Um, Good, good. Uh, and, uh, in Mythgard Academy, we are nearly ready to do the voting on the next, uh, on the next, uh, books that we're going to be covering. We, we, we actually are going to finish Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell in two weeks. Um, I absolutely, oh, wow, talk about good adaptations. The miniseries, the BBC miniseries of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, I don't know how many of you have read the book or seen the miniseries, that thing is fantastic. What a brilliant adaptation it is. Man, I've watched the first four episodes now, completely blown away um, by the skill of that adaptation. Really, really good. Um uh, so anyway, so yeah, so we're, we're, we're talking about the adaptation now, uh, still have two more weeks of that, uh, and then we'll be done. Uh, but you know, come January, it'll be time to go back and do, um, um, do another, uh, 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 another round of Mythgard Academy classes. So we'll see what, uh, what comes up for a vote there. Um, I don't know, uh, I, I, I don't yet know exactly what the five f- finalists are gonna be, uh, for that vote. And five or seven, I forget which number we're gonna actually You present. mean the fix isn't in? No, the fix is not, I never know. I, I never, uh, I mean, hey, look, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, I'd never read before. I'm, I, I have discovered it, and, uh, it's, uh, it's been, it's been a wonderful, wonderful discovery. Um, I mean, I would now put Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell among I mean, easily the five best, um, the five best fantasy novels published since the year 2000. I mean, I, if I were making a list of the five best fantasy novels published since the year 2000, I would definitely put Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell high on that list. It is absolutely brilliant, gorgeous book. Unbelievable. The point being that there's something in this, these Mythgard Academy courses for Corey as well. <laughs> yeah. 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 Anyway, so. When I read that book, I knew you were going to love that book. It's oh, an yeah. awesome book. Oh yeah, yeah, so good. Anyway, okay, but let's get back to Melkor. So, um, right. So today's episode. Today's episode is the establishment of Valinor. Now, there was kind of a movement on the discussion board. Um, several of you on the discussion board um, were uh, sort of pitching the idea that we save the trees for the next episode. Um, I think that's a brilliant suggestion. I. Um, I, 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 I like that a lot. I mean, one of the basic questions we had, I mean, as I said at the end of, of our session last time, was these next two episodes are kind, were kind of, well, I won't call them filler, but when we worked up from the beginning and back from the end, uh, as for content we really wanted to cover, these were the two that were kind of left in the middle, saying, okay, here's kind of Valinor stuff. Um, so having the first of them be the decision to go to Valinor and the establishment of Valinor, and the second one be uh, be the tree, you know, be the the, the growth of the trees, um, that makes a, a lot of sense to me. It's not enough, of course. We can't just say in this episode they go to Valinor. The end. Um, you know, we need a lot more than that. Um, but uh, so I do, I do like that distinction, and I'm very ready to sort of accept that um, uh, that distinction um so given that um i you know the one thing that i would emphasize thinking uh uh you know sort of time uh, coming back to the books and tolkien's depiction of valinor in this moment when they head out to valinor one of the things that really strikes me 
in his description of Valinor, as contrasted with Almerin, one of the things that Tolkien really uh, emphasizes, both in, in the published Silmarillion and even way back in the Book of Lost Tales, was the fact that each of the Valar get their own domain within Valinor, right? Valinor is like subdivided into the different areas, some of which are are so crucially tied to the Valar that the Valar go by the name, like Mandos and Lorien, right? Which are not actually the names of those Valar, but uh, of those Valar, but are the names of their their domains. You know, those two, for instance, are so firmly identified with their domains that they they take on their own their names. So, the, whereas in Almorin, the emphasis is just like this is the place where they all live together. In Valinor, Valinor gets more emphatically subdivided. I'm not saying that that means that we're seeing them separate from each other and not working together as much, but. I think it, in, it it gives us the opportunity, this emphasis in the book gives us the opportunity, I think, really to explore some of these characters and to think about the shift from Almer into Valinor, what it really means, what it, what it means, it's because it's not just a change in location, it's not just a change in the story of Melkor and the Valar, um, it can be also a shift in a real change of one historical era to another. You know, this is a time when the Valar are doing different things and thinking of themselves in different ways and and uh, and and taking up different tasks. I would think for instance, thinking about Lorien and Mandos, that they really kind of come into their roles when they move to Valinor. You know, maybe they don't even really they don't play that much of a role in the establishment of things over in Almorin. Um but hmm. when they once they establish their their you know they they're they're really setting up their shops over there in Valinor and really starting their real work. Nienna too, I now, think. Do you think that this subdivision and the description of the fact that they're now take on roles could be narrated by Elrond? Or do you think that well Seems like it could save time if he kind of did this sort of overview. It and could. They did this, and they did that. I mean, we could do it, you know, better than that. But. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm torn about that. Um, <clears throat> it would be efficient, but it would undercut the drama. You know, I can't help but think that it's a little bit. It would be a little bit peculiar. I mean, it could be managed easily managed within the frame, right? Um, you know, we could have uh, we could have you know Elrond saying to saying to Estelle that they um, you know that like you know the Valar it's you know they all went and they they all pursued their own, their 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 you know their different tasks and purposes and and established their own domains and you know Estelle saying like okay you know who are they like what do they do. What were their domains? And Elrond being like, well, let me tell you. And then he does a Valaquenta-esque summary uh, of each one of them. That could totally be done. But my concern is that it puts us as viewers in a very different place. Like, we've been following one kind of narrative, and that puts us... It, it would be like interrupting, like, have the Valaquenta come between Chapter 1 and Chapter 2, you know, of the Quenta. Do you see what I mean? Um... And I would I would kind of yeah. worry that it yeah. would break the yeah. it would break the pace of of the story yeah. that we were telling. Well, I was bit. trying to think how to do it relatively quickly, you know, in right. terms of uh, especially because you know, they're going to establish Valinor, but then we also have this other thing of needing to sort of flesh out some of the characters, which we'll get to talking to in a second. Um, 
so I was thinking, you know, how much, how much, how much time can we realistically spend on this? You know, they established Valinor and did the divisions and all that kind of stuff, both in terms of our time, the time we have available, and also to not lose the audience's attention. Um, right. Well, I, 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 Gabrielle is right. We do have some time to spend, um, so we're not necessarily in a huge rush. But I think the way that we do that, I think the the mechanism that we can use to do that is just to be introducing representatives rather than the whole... We don't need to do a survey of everybody's domain. Um, if we were to establish... If we were to focus in on one or two people and their domain because we're telling a particular story about them, you know, we have a, a, a subplot like unto the Tolkas and Nessa subplot that we did in episode five. We have another subplot which involves um, some of the other Valar... Um, and involves their domains and the establishment of their domains in Valinor. That enables us to show them and what they're doing and how they're acting in Valinor. And we can, you know, I think that that would enable us to just sort of allow the viewers to kind of project outwards, like, and now we understand that everybody has this kind of thing. Um, but, um, so, so yeah, so I, I think doing a closer look at a representative sample I think is probably the mechanism that would be that would be most effective for that. Um, <laughs> I love Karina's. Estelle doesn't need to ask. Estelle can space out and start thinking about sword fighting and lunch while Elrond goes on and on about the Valar and the domain. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's exactly the cue we want to be giving to our viewers. Right. <laughs> Space out, because what's about to come is really boring. Um, boring. <laughs> I mean, of course, it would be a funny sort of joke, right? If we do this and like knowing that there's a risk that it's kind of that it that it could be kind of boring, and then we go back to show that Estelle in fact has like he's fallen asleep. His while, eyes and, you know, while, <laughs> yeah, he's like nodding off while Elrond is uh, yeah. is is talking. But uh, but yeah, I I don't think we want to undermine ourselves quite to that extent, oh. but. Um, um, but yeah, now Marie Prosser is right that Lorien's people, um, you know, we've got, by doing, if we spend some time with, uh, with Nienna, Lorien, and Mandos, this gives us an opportunity also to introduce, uh, Oloren, Melian, Este, um, you know, the Este being Lorien's wife. Irmo's wife, um, you know. So yeah, there, there there is a lot of potential there. There's a lot that can um, uh, that can happen. So um, uh, so uh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, that that's you know, Marie. That's exactly why I was leaning towards them in particular because they've had no. Um, um, They've had no airtime so far. I mean, other than maybe Mando saying a thing or two, uh, certainly Lorian and Nienna, there's been no real way to work them in. And what's more, we haven't had a call for Nienna yet. There's been nothing to weep about, right? Now that Almarin has burned, Nienna now has something to cry about. <laughs> so that's good, right? <laughs> <laughs> Now's the time to bring Nienna in. Um <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, good. Marie says that Yavanna and Vanna both, uh, can, uh, help make the guards. And, and Marie, yeah, that's not going to be confusing at all, right? Um, uh, <laughs> but hey, it's perfectly fair. It confuses everybody. Um, uh, 
so anyway, yes, I agree that Yavanna and Vanna um, can make up the gardens of Lorien, but I would actually kind of want to save them for the next episode because we're we're going to do the trees. That gives us a perfect opportunity to spotlight Yavanna, and of course, we'll be bringing Nienna into that as well. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. So 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 I think we could. I think that I think that we could do that. But let, let's pause for a second. Let's back up because I think that there are some. There's, there's even a, a bigger, okay, well actually no, since we're, since we've already gone here, let's continue with this for just a minute more. Um, what other characters do we feel that we need to introduce or at least either really get into, um, or, uh, or, or at least cameo so that we're building familiarity? I mean, one of the most common suggestions on the discussion board, um, was that we, um, we, we should start showing the wizards like people people want to bring gandalf and saruman in or mm. aloran and kuromo um and i agree that the and radagast gabriel yes um you know i window can also be there um uh so that we can we can we can start in with some radagast action there but again he's with yavanna so maybe we can see um him you know, being present and, and, and helping out at the, at the, the growth of the trees in the next episode. Um, Orame, Chris, I agree. Orame is one that we haven't done much with yet. And we wouldn't, now, as I've said before, we have, we have an Orame feature in our back pocket, right? Orame is going to be the one who discovers the elves. So we're going to, we're going to spend a lot of time with Orame at the beginning of season two. Um, so in my mind, it's, it's a little less urgent we can't have him be a complete stranger. He's going to have to play a significant, he's one of the chief warrior figures of the Valar. So he's going to have to play an important role in the war at the end of season one. So he can't be a total stranger, but I don't think we have to spend too much time with him because we will, we will get a, we will get a chance. Um, um, but, but anyway, yeah. So Orame, I agree, uh, is on the list. So, Neither Yavanna nor Orame have we done too much with, but we, we have, you know, Yavanna with the trees, Orame with the finding of the elves, we have chances for them later on. Um, uh, Huan has been mentioned, um, uh, which, uh, I, I, I agree. Huan would, it would be awesome to show Huan. We also, of course, have to decide exactly who Huan is. Um, you know, if we're going to tell his backstory, he's called the Hound of Valinor. It's clear he is not a normal dog. But what is he? Is he like an, uh, is he a dog who is just an ultimate super dog? Or is he like a Maya who takes the form of a dog? Um, That's what I'm thinking. There's a Maya who chose that form. Like all the Maya have chosen whatever form they took. And he decided to take a four-legged form. Right. Hmm. Yeah. I mean... <sighs> Is this is I kind of wonder is this one of these things um, uh, where uh, is this an example of the sort of thing that Christopher Tolkien talked about where he said peering too close like basically if we go out of our way to to very precisely explain exactly who Juan is and how he came about and what he is same thing with Bombadil and things like that is that going to ruin him? I think it. Basically, all we need to do, I think, to avoid, is just avoid laborious on-screen explanations, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we can kind of make up our own minds if we want to, but we don't have to manifest that in dialogue. Um, okay. So, like, Huan, for instance, he could just, I mean, he, he can never appear in any form but dog form, right? Um, 
and we can kind of leave people to speculate. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think if we did it right, um, we would our depiction of Huan would spawn like internet debates over whether or not he's actually a Maya, right, yeah, or whether cool. he's just a. Whether he's just a super dog. Um, I mean, we could decide it in the background and not address it in the show. That's right, right, right. Here's another question for you. Will there be others? In other words, is Huan unique? Or will there be other hounds of Valinor and deer of Valinor and horses of Valinor? Well, he's a hound. So he's got to be a... I mean, they're pack animals, right? Right, I mean, yeah. Exactly. That's I mean, a really good point. He's got to be running in a pack. Right? Yeah. Um so yeah, I, I mean, I would think when we introduce Huan, we introduce Huan as a member, maybe not even the leader of Orame's pack. Right. Um, right. And then what we would need to do is to make sure we sh- we have an episode. So we'd have grip, Fang and Grip. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're also hounds of Valinor. Fang and Grip. And, <laughs> well, you know, Maggot named them after the. Hounds of <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's just what Orame named his hounds. Is the Mayaras Shadowfax's line? Are they Valinor based? In other words, is this yes. also a place to foreshadow that? Okay, yes. so this would be a place we could foreshadow that as well. Yeah, and again, not be real explicit about it, but just the people who know would know, and it, people who don't know it wouldn't really. Yeah, I mean, they've got to. They've. We've got to make sure that the Noldor brings some horses with them from Valinor. Um, yeah. So I mean, basically, we we need to show who on running in the power, or at least in season one, we just need to show that uh, that Orame has a pack of awesome hounds. Oh, that's and, true. You know, Tom Hellman has said that actually Farmer Maggot. I was thinking that Bombadil. Some people have said that the you know, conjecture is that Bombadil is Orme in disguise. But Tom Hellman is like Farmer Maggot is actually Orme in disguise. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 uh, no. Now that's a real Jackson esque de- deviation. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. no. Definitely, definitely not. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so, okay, so anyway, so all we need to show is that Orame has hounds. And then in season yeah. two, with the Noldor, we can show, like, Kelagorm and some of the other Noldor riding on the hunt with Orame. Oh, and yeah. so we can introduce Huon and, 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 you know, we can actually have, we can depict in, in an episode when Orame, uh, you know, uh, gives Huon as a gift. To, to, to Kelagorn. Great idea. Cause see, that's another thing that I would want to be tragic. I mean, when, when Huan turns against Kelagorn, it should be, yeah. it, like, people should be crying, like, for the loss of their relationship, basically, you know, to yeah. think about Huan and how far Kelagorn has fallen and, uh, and knowing what it means to Huan to turn against Kelagorn with their history. And I mean, I, 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 I think we could really make that into a, a really, a really powerful moment. But, um, I may actually cry during our talk of the of that particular. Episode. <laughs> yeah, it's a big deal. I mean, I think that's a it's that that's really that's really that's really a, a big uh, a big deal. Um, um, yeah, and, and uh, both Chris and David are calling me on the gift thing. Um, I mean, I, it's clear that it should be a friendship between Kelagorm and Huan. But basically, when I say gift, what I mean is like that that. Um, 
you know, it should be a combination of basically Orome giving Huan leave to depart from the right. from his pack and go off with Keligorm, and also you know Orome telling Keligorm that you know that he can um, that you know basically that that he can keep Huan. I mean, it it, it should seem well, you know, he tells like, he tells Keligorm that Huan's requested a transfer. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, we show Keligorm, his pack of hounds, and, uh, you know, whereas Huan was just like one of the hounds of, of Orome, among Keligorm's hounds, Huan, you know, big time, right? yeah, he's, he's weird. like the huge leader of the pack, um, uh, the, the capital alpha dog of, uh, of, 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 of Keligorm's pack, but again, more, more friend and companion than, um, uh, then, but yes, I mean, goodness, this gives us the opportunity to show Huan's reactions to, uh, to the oath, right? I mean, Keligorm steps forward to, uh, to, 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 uh, speak the oath and we can, we can show like, you know, Huan respond, you know, Huan's there, right? And how he would respond to the oath. Um, you know, the burning of the ships. I mean, you know, we, we can have like the silent commentary of Huan on the entire trajectory of the fall of the Noldor, you know. Howling. Howling in the background, like my dogs do, you know? <laughs> I, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, but he's not there yet. And of course, Brian, of course it could be done really campy and I'm not suggesting we, we, yeah. we do it. But, but yeah, I mean, it's just like he can be making appearances, you know, and we, and we can show, it's, I mean, that, that there's this sort of tension, you know. It's, it's, it's a variation on the boy and his dog trope, really, which I think <laughs> is a really powerful emotional, I mean, it is, you know, yeah. an emotional trope, really. Um, to portray this as a really tight bond, and then to see Huan like almost grieve in in stages over Keligorm's you know fall, I think it's a powerful story. Yeah, I mean, what what he can provide is just basically a sort of I don't know, sort of cues for us. I mean, he's like he's like Keligorm's conscience, you know. Yeah, um, I was going to say the moral compass. Yeah, yeah. exactly. He's, he's Keligorm's Jiminy Cricket. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> exactly. If you think about, um, if you think, except, you know, bigger teeth. Um, but, uh, <laughs> and, not, and, and no top hat. And no top hat. If you think about, um, if you think about, even just with what we were talking about with Melkor, about this whole progress and the question of like, is he still redeemable, right? Um, you know, basically I'm thinking the moment that Huan leaves Keligorm, is basically the moment when Huan concludes Keligorm is not redeemable. Like he's gone. He right. has gone over the bend. He's not. He's not coming. He has finally crossed over the line where there's there's no coming back for Keligorm. And Huan recognizes that and leaves him. And that also comes out of sort of a budding relationship with Luthien, doesn't it? Huan's. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We're gonna resurrect Team Huan, Dave. Yeah, <laughs> Team I, like I like Absolutely. it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, yep, yep. Very good. Okay, all right. We're getting distracted now, but it's still, it's still all, it's still all good stuff. Million too. I mean, I think you know her involvement. It's going to be, you know, and here I think we need to be content for less. You know, again, just sort of showing them, you know, like with Huan, we don't need Huan to do anything or have him single that in any way. Just show that Orme has hounds and that sets us up for what we can right. do with Huan in season two. I'm light brush strokes with all these people. Yeah. Alien, Oloran, all those folks, light brush strokes. 
Yeah. 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 Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Brian says, thinking of how much we'll get to know who I'm through this whole process makes me think of how awful and sad his death will be. Yeah. Won't it, Brian? I mean, oh man, the, 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 the tragedy of the death of Huan. I mean, goodness. Yes. Um, I'm going to cry buckets. I'm going to cry buckets. I mean, I already kind of tear up whenever I read that in the book. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Oh, I think it's, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is why opportunities like this are some of the reasons that I find this whole idea of doing a prolonged serial so exciting, you know, because th there's just no other way on screen to be able to get these kinds of plots, you know, and to develop these kinds of characters. I just, um, I'm really excited for these, for these kinds of, uh, these kinds of opportunities. Anyway, okay, but we should, we should hustle along. So, okay, so, Bigger question then, Melkor's trajectory. Um, we need to we need to think. Not I'm not just thinking of episode seven here. Um, and of course, I'm leaving us very little time to talk about episode seven. But um, I, but <laughs> thinking about we've got to have some kind of map or at least some kind of a general sense. How are we going to get from here to the war at the end? And here's my suggestion. My suggestion is there should be open tension. Like many of the Valar suspect that Melkor really was responsible for the destruction of the lamps. Not all of them do, but some of them do. Um, some of them might suspect others. Tensions, I think, should arise among not. It's, it, it should definitely not be all of the Valar united on one side and Melkor over here and increasing suspicion. Um, I think there should be a lot of discord. Um, that I think should be kind of the overall theme of this second half of the season is discord basically. And the discord comes in with the destruction of the lamps. And the to me, the, the sort of the the way that I would want to to sort of summarize the overall kind of moral drama of the second half of the season is there's conflict, there's tension, there's 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 chaos. The Valar as a whole, and especially Manway, think that it can be reconciled. Right. They believe that the narrative ahead of them is how can we bring everybody together? How can we reconcile all of this and reestablish order and peace in Arda? That's their job. Right. Is to reestablish order and peace and get everybody working together. Um, what they're and, 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 and the thing is, in some cases, that's going to work. Right. When Aule looks like he's going to go off the tracks, he comes back. And everything's fine, right? When Ase rebels, and it looks like now we've got, you know, now the, 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 the oceans are falling all to pieces, right? And we've got chaos in the, that comes back, right? And is reconciled and harmony is reestablished. So we have some examples of how there is a general move from chaos towards increased order and, you know, from discord towards increasing concord among the Valar. The tension is going to be basically Manway still counts Melkor in that category, right? He still thinks that the Melkor situation is just one of those things, that one of those pieces of discord which needs to be brought back into Concord, and that everybody can still sort of reconcile. Um, and what he has to confront at the end, the, the thing that the thing that happens, that the, what leads to the climax of the season is the recognition 
no, that's not the situation here. There's no reconciliation with Melkor. We actually have to fight him. We have to, in in that sense, and it, to to Manway, it, it will seem like giving into discord, right? Instead of holding out for harmony, instead of uh, attempting to establish peace, we have to establish peace by violence. Um, and that is a, a, a something which I think that Manway only comes to very, very reluctantly and very slowly, um, understanding that. Couple, couple things. Um, I think this episode. I'd like, as you were talking, I realized this is probably the first real uh, point where the music, the discord of the music, happened. Um, right. So musically, that motif should should be prominent in the soundtrack in this episode. Right. You know that first discord. Um, the other thing is, it, I'm thinking that this would be the point at which the Maya that have been sort of maybe, you know, sort of undercovered, you know, sort of following Melkor actually take sides during this, like you said, the debate, you know, Mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. And that Maya that are going to go with Melkor really gravitate in that direction. Now, the other question in my mind is when does he go to Autumno? And it could be when he discovers that he actually has quite a retinue. You know, hey, there's actually these, you know, I've got followers. I've got folks that will come with me. And he may choose... In this episode or the next episode, at some point he's got to go to Autumno, right? So that needs to happen, and, and yes. that might be sometime relatively soon. I think I think he goes to Autumno when the Valar go to Valinor. Oh, okay. So he doesn't go with them to Valinor. He doesn't go with him to Valinor. I think he and doesn't so, go yeah, with so that's So then he's got this retinue of people that are following him. Hey, guys, I have an alternative this is a better, you know, I got a better plan than for you guys to go to Valinor, come with me. And he takes off to a thumbnail. So, so this episode then, or, yes. or next, are we next? This episode yes. or the next? I, at least he sets off for it. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, how does that, how does that mesh with sort of the idea that like, we, we, we haven't established him firmly as a villain, at least in the minds of the, um, the other Valar. Like how are they gonna? So 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 the the lamp gets destroyed and there's a lot of confusion. There's widespread suspicion of him, but no proof, and 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 folks are willing to give him benefit of the doubt. And then he up and disappears and relocates and makes up makes himself a new base. No, here's my thought. Okay. Okay. The focus of episode seven should be on the debate about whether to go to Valinor. And. Because basically, so we have, okay, uh, you know, so the, the beginning of the episode is focused on the, the lamps have just been destroyed. Um, we haven't had any of the aftermath. You know, the end of, we were talking about ending episode six with the, the, the destruction of the lamps, the corruption of the Balrogs, and them coming back and reporting to Melkor and, uh, Melkor betraying the fact that he's really pleased that the lamps were destroyed and that that was what he wanted all along. Um, well, not all along, but that's what he wanted to happen. Um, but we haven't done any of the aftermath. So all the aftermath. So Aryan, we could begin the episode with Aryan, you know, running, rushing into the other Valar and saying, you know, um, bad news. My compatriots have gone crazy and they're going to attack the, the, um, the lamps. Um, so, you know, then we get the, we get the destruction of Almarin, um, you know, from the point of view of the Valar and, and they, um, 
or maybe we, you know, maybe we do get Aryan bursting in at the end of episode six so that we can just begin episode seven with the flames of Almarin. Um, but they still have to talk about, you know, so the whole like they suspect Melkor, they don't suspect Melkor, that all happens here, right? So they, they have to have a talk. They have to have a, they have to have a council, um, you know, somewhere like on a hilltop overlooking the smoldering ruins of Almarin, basically. And decide a what the heck just happened. B what do we do now? Right. I mean those right. those things those things have to occur. Um, and the Melkor issue could be quite a heated debate. I mean, it yes. Could cause friction, big friction. And he's there. And he's there. Right. So like you know, Aryan is pointing the finger at him, and he points the finger back at Aryan. And maybe, maybe, uh, you know, we have had, we have suggested that some other of the Valar are, have been kind of opposed to him. Didn't we single out Olmo as, who was already kind of speaking against Melkor in earlier episodes? So he could also implicitly suggest that, you know, he, he, he could point the finger openly at Aryan and suggest that she's in collusion with others and he can be kind of pointing the finger, uh, by implication, um, at, at like Olmo. You know, he, he, he could blame all, cause almost weird. He's a loner, right? Nobody really gets him. So, so yeah, he could totally, that would, that would totally make sense. Um, and we already had set up Olmo as a rival for Melkor anyway, which makes sense given what happens through the rest of the first stage. So, um. You could have a fire and water fight. Exactly. Fire and water, man, right? You know, I mean, it makes sense. They'd be opposed to each other. So, okay, so. So we have, um, so that debate has to happen. Um, but, uh, basically I think Manway kind of cuts across because there's, there's not any reconciliation. And by the way, I think that Tolkas, uh, is probably one of the outspoken leaders of the anti-Melkor camp. I think that he suspects Melkor and is, is like, you know, maybe he even like, you know, wants to challenge Melkor to fight right there. Um, but it doesn't happen. And Mel- Manwe won't allow it to happen. He, he doesn't want things to just devolve into violence. That's giving into chaos. That's giving into disorder. He wants to establish, reestablish order, reestablish harmony. Actually, we have Brian, to rebuild. Brian just had, a, he's like echoing you here. The way he sees it is that they have an argument in the ashes. Manwe ultimately says, okay, we've been working on our own too much. Here's my idea. Let's all build a place for us uh, to be near each other more so we can get in sync. I think that's yeah, yeah. Though in a sense, though, see the irony is that Val, in, in a sense, in Valinor they move apart rather than together. Um, in the sense that they each they each establish their own little realm or yeah, yeah, burrow. Exactly. Yeah, they each have their own burrow. Maybe that's it. You know, like he's maybe that's the thing would be Manway. Maybe there's been too much confusion or there's been too much overlap. We're not efficient. We're not working efficiently. We need to get our processes down. So we're gonna do. We're gonna departmentalize. Right. <laughs> or right. whatever Valar version. What Valar version fast conversation would be. Right. Right. Um, and yeah, the, no, but, so the point is, he steps in and says, "All right, let's just move on. Here's you know, here's what we're gonna do." And then he takes over, right? Basically. Pretty much, yeah. Now, um, now the which would which would piss Melkor off, actually, if Manway did that. But the big question is, where do they go, and what do they do, and for what reasons? Manway says, "Let's go over and establish Valinor," but Valinor is on the other side of the sea. To go to Valinor is essentially to leave Middle Earth, and the argument uh-huh. is we're going to work from without. Uh, right, we're going to go over and we're going to establish. 
Um, because the whole idea of Valinor is basically introducing a split between where the Valar live and what, you know, and the, you know, the land of the Valar and the rest of Middle-earth, right? That the argument has to be they need to establish a realm of peace. They they need to be able to, you know, Brian thinking sort of of a version of what you're saying, Manway saying like, we have to come together. We have to work together. We have to establish peace. We can't just transform the entire world. There's discord and chaos now all over the world and, and we can see the ripples of this. We need to get ourselves together. So let's make a retreat, right? Let, let's, let's step aside from the rest of the world for now and build Valinor, and we can establish this place of Concord, the Blessed Realm, um, where, uh, and then from there, uh, fr- you know, from that seat of strength and order and harmony, we will be able to govern and rule and regulate and and uh, and and establish peace and harmony from there outwards towards the rest of Middle Earth. Melkor can speak up against this, right? And Melkor can say, "No, we shouldn't leave Middle Earth. That's a mistake." Um, we should, we should, that's mere escapism. We can't, and and so he can depict the establishment of Valinor as mere solipsism, right? Let's not just turn inward and start navel gazing off on, off on some continent on the other side of the ocean. We should be reestablishing ourselves here. We should establish a new and stronger kingdom here in Middle Earth. That's Otumno. You see? Ah. So he says, so, so basically, they, they, they. Maybe can euphemistically refer to it as New Almerin. <laughs> New Almerin, exactly. Let's re, we must rebuild Almerin. You see, this is also how he's deflecting suspicion. Because everyone is saying, like, you destroyed Almerin, and he's like, no man, I'm the one who wants to rebuild Almerin. It's Manway who wants to, like, leave yeah. Middle Earth behind and go do something else. And so, you see the cool thing here? The really cool thing is that Melkor isn't wrong. It is a mistake. It's just Brian said. Brian said that Melkor is right for the wrong reason. Exactly. Exactly. I love that. You yeah. know, it's it, it is a mistake for the Valar to go and uh, to leave yeah. Middle Earth behind. Um, but but again, he's 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 not actually in the right. But uh, I mean, his mo- his motivations are crooked. He's really trying to establish his own kingdom. Um, because you see what he's done. Remember the problem with the, with, you know, his problem, the reason he wanted the lamps destroyed and the reason he forced this breach in the first place is that he felt he wasn't getting enough respect, right? So you see what the situation creates? The situation creates a world now in which Melkor is essentially able to draw a line between himself and Manway. Basically what he's saying to everybody is choose. If you follow Manway instead of me, yeah, go off to your little island out there, whatever it is, right? Leave the world behind. If you want to stay with me in, in Middle Earth, you know, if you want to stay with me in the Great Lands and, uh, and, and reestablish Amarin and, uh, bring peace and order and goodness oh, to yeah. this world, really then stay with me. So yeah. he sees it as a line in the sand, which leads him to become more bitter because most of them go with Manway. And the other thing that's interesting about this is this is a precursor to the other big mistake that the Valar make, which is to bring the elves over later. Yes. Yes. Exactly. 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 I, I think that the the choice to bring the elves over, or rather, the error in judgment um, that the Valar made in choosing to bring the elves over to Valinor is already implicit in the establishment of Valinor yep. in the first place. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. But, um, 
Yeah. Interesting. And, and, and I could see a conversation. I mean, uh, uh, like Brian says, you know, and Manway is really bummed that Melkor goes. I could even see a, a conversation between he and Varda, and where Manway finally says, well, he made his choice. You know, I mean, I'm sorry to see it happen, but he made his choice, kind of right. thing. You know, uh, right. Right. And you can see how people like in the Tolkis camp, right? Tolkis can be like basically as the episodes go along, he is is increasingly frustrated saying things like, so what are are we just like basically conceding all of Middle Earth to Melkor? Like that's his realm now. Like we're we're just sort of accepting the fact that he's the rightful king of all of Middle Earth and we have Valinor and he has that and and him like, you know, and, and Tolkis and Olmo. Uh, well, you know, Toka saying, let's go kick, uh, 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 Melkor's butt, and Omo more broadly saying, remember, all of Arda is our charge. You know, we, right. we can't, we can't, th- th- for us to focus merely on Valinor is, would be an abdic, an, an abdication. We would be making, uh, what Melkor said true. It would become escapism. Orme would be of that camp too, wouldn't he? Cause, I mean, he and Omo, Orme and Omo were, you know, stayed, Attached to Middle Earth. Yes, yes, yes. And Yavanna, I mean, they would be, they would, they would be quick to speak out there. Right. Right. Yeah. Now, Marie makes a good point. I think there's a way we can do this. You know, we have to be careful and make sure that we don't make Melkor seem really wise. I'm thinking that his, his, in his uh, speech enrolling people to come with him, you know, to stand in Middle Earth, I think there could be some giveaways in the way he couches his, his speech to be. To show that it's dominion that he's after. Oh, absolutely, um, yes. It should be so really clear. Be clear. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, and and, and I, I think that's that's exactly the right way to say it. We know that that's his real motivation. What he's really after is dominion, and that he's <laughs> he's glad for this opportunity. Almost going to look at Melkor and do the two eyes thing. You know? <laughs> right, like, right, like, exactly. I'm looking at you. Yeah, I mean, have my eye on you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. um yeah 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 so uh so anyway so so then they go over to they they go over to valinor and yes tim fisher i think the valor do do the wrong thing for the right reasons yeah that is yeah absolutely true yeah yeah i mean and and i think that's a that's a great place to be that's a fun place to bring things to have at this moment melkor doing the right thing for the wrong reasons and the valor doing the wrong thing for the right reasons i think that's that's fantastic. I mean, I think that's actually a really cool depiction of the moral complexity of Tolkien's world, actually. Um, so, okay, so now it's quite possible that what we've just described is, like, pretty much an episode, um, but I don't think we want to have an entire episode of people sitting around in debate. Um, that's not very interesting. So, And we do need to visually establish Valinor. So I think we need to get over to Valinor and have Valinor constructed and then have uh, have Melkor be building <clears throat> Otumno, a.k.a. New Almorin, um, and, uh, and being really disappointed that nobody shows up. It wouldn't be for this episode, <laughs> but it might be for the... Yeah, really. That's like, you know... What, I gave a party and only you guys showed up? Jeez. Right. Um, this is something for also in the future, but maybe we need to, like, just put a pin in it for now, which is... Uh, Melkor discovers the elves before Orme does, right? I mean, that's the whole thing about him, like... Yes. One, one, of the, one of the orc theories being that he pulls... You know, he snaps, you know, snaps up un, un, unwary elves and corrupts them. 
So that also, I don't know that that happens. I mean, so that's going to obviously have to, we're going to have to see that before the end of the season because the end of the season is where Orm may discover it. No, begin at the beginning of next season. So the end of the uh, season okay. is the Elves Awakening. Okay. So, oh, okay. So the whole thing about yeah, Melkor could be at the beginning. We can kick that all down the line. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So that that whole question of where where do orcs come from? Season two, I am totally turfing that to season two. Like I, I, am, I am I am punting that. Uh, I am. Now I am, we could have yeah. Melkor discovering them still asleep this season. That's nope. Option. Nope. No, we just have them waking up. No, 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 no elves. No elves. <laughs> that, 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 yeah, yeah. The elves get no more than I. I. I think the elves should get no more than thirty seconds of this season. I absolutely I agree. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I think that like like there's there's no point in getting ahead of ourselves on that. Yep. That's such such an important okay. moment. That's Why cool. anticipate it? Yep. Yep. Um. Okay. So. Do we have time? Do we think we would have time for another subplot, a Valinorian subplot in this episode? Hmm. I'm thinking that, well, I mean, what are we going to do next episode? I was thinking next episode is where we... Well, the trees. We get the trees. But we could do something other than the trees. We could have two... Like, we could have the trees plus another Valinorian subplot. Because Um, the trees would actually cover Nienna, wouldn't it? And uh, Yavanna? Nienna would be involved. Yavanna's involved, too, right? I mean, so that's how we would deal with those. Okay, let me... Do you have a subplot mine, Corey? Maybe start doing Holly? I do have a subplot in mind. Sort of. Okay, no. Actually, my problem is I don't have a plot in mind. I have a concept. I have a concept. Yeah, it's just a sub. It's not a plot. Um, I have a, I have a, I, I have a concept or even a theme. Um, uh, but, uh, who, who I want in the spotlight is, as I am, as I mentioned before, Irmo, Namo, and Nienna. Uh huh. Okay. Ah, okay. I'm thinking, and, and, and so here's, 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 here's my, it's it's not a plot, but it's a concept. I want to establish them, first of all, because since Lorien and Mandos are such important places, I, I think that showing the establishment of, you know, the, the domains of Namo and Irmo is a great way for us to do the sort of shorthand, and here's what all of the other Valar are also doing, establishing their own domains. We use the spotlight as, you know, them as a sample, as a, as a, as an illustrative sample. To show what the Valinor, what the Valar are up to. That's one small thing that we can accomplish there. But more importantly, we introduce these characters. These are, none of these are action characters. So it's going to be really easy for them not to be heavily involved in action later on. And so therefore, be, like Lorian in particular, how on earth are you going to like spotlight Lorian and give him a real role? Um, but, I think that conceptually, all three of them, Irmo, Namo, and Nienna, thematically are crucial for this, for the second half of this season, and in particular for this moment of the discord and, and the, the kind of sundering that's happening with the split between Valinor and Atumna that we we're talking about. Um, Irmo. <clears throat> so we've got Irmo, Lorian, um, who's associated with with peace and with recuperation. He hasn't come in to this point because no one's needed to recuperate from anything. There hasn't been that much conflict, 
right? There hasn't been, there has there, there have been no bad guys, right? There's been no fighting. There's been no grief. Um, everything's been, but now, now, like, post, uh, burning of Almerin, now we have people who need therapy, right? <clears throat> we have people, you know, we have, we have the need for healing for the first time. There have been wounds for the first time, right? Um, you know, uh, using that sort of, that term generally, not, not just physically. Um, so the idea of we need a place to recover, we need a place for healing, um, now comes up. And again, this is part of Manway's vision for Valinor, right? We make this into a place of healing, into a place where harmony is reestablished. Um, uh, harmony, I would say, I, I mean, I, I think that all three of them, Namo, Irmo, and Nienna, all three of them can be seen as like different elements, different kind of manifested elements of the kind of harmony that um that Manway wants to see brought to Middle-earth. Right. Irmo is peace and healing. Namo is justice and fate. Justice also being a part of harmony, right? That things go as they should go. And Nienna, pity. Um you know the 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 the, the pity and the mourning of Nienna is, is again, and so again, just as, I mean, I was joking earlier when I said Nienna didn't have anything to cry about before, but it's true, right? You know, she comes into her own, um, the, the significance of her role only becomes clear after Almarin falls, just yeah. as the significance yeah. of Irmo's role only becomes clear after, after, uh, after, uh, 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 Almarin falls. And I think that we can even put Mandos in that same, um, in that same category, because before this, before the the debate that we show at the beginning of episode seven, there wasn't any real doubt. You know, the the question of like how should things proceed and what is the fate of Middle Earth? Uh, you know, what is the path that we should f- go down? Well, that wasn't in doubt either. Everyone was living together, and it was there was harmony generally, and everyone was getting along, and everything looked like it was going along swimmingly. We don't need Namo to you know we don't need Mando standing up and telling us prophecies, right? Um, so, okay. So, so I think all three of those are really involved, um, in this. And, um, can I say, by the way, it, uh, on, on this, on this note, um, I, I, I had a, a cool idea for Vire's character, Vire the Weaver, uh, Namo's wife, Mandos's wife. I think that Vire should never speak. I think she should, she, she only speaks through the tapestries that she weaves. But mm. I, but I, I think like that. that I think that she is essentially the source. So like when Mandos gives his declarations, like what Mandos knows of the future, he learns from the weavings of Vira. <laughs> he's just taking credit for... <laughs> no, 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 he's not taking credit for it. He's the doomsman, right? And so he's involved with right. justice and judgment as much as... Right. So she, like her, her, because her, with Vira the Weaver, she's connected, it's like, it's like the fates. Right, I mean, people were talking about this on the discussion board too. Uh, you know, th- there there is a kind of uh, non coincidental weaving thing going on there, right? I mean, she is like the Greek fates to some extent, um, not exactly the same and not filling the same role. But yeah, she's the one who actually has this this sort of the vision of the future, and she puts those visions uh, into her uh, uh, into her tapestry. And, and Mandos is the one, and, and those tapestries hang in, in, in the halls of Mandos, right? And so Namo studies those, and he studies those with Vire, and, uh, and, and so it's from sort of seeing these things, and, and, and then his own just, his own, 
his own justice and his own judgment that he's able to, you know, sort of decree his dooms informed by the, the sort of the prophetic insight of, of Vire. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think that'd be real, but, but Vire should never talk. Like she, she, she is completely silent. It's only through her tapestries that she, that she speaks. Um, uh, anyway, okay. So you see what I'm saying when I say I have a concept, but no plot. Like I don't have a story. Uh, you want to do something with them about them, but I want to do something with them, and I want to link them to the. Be- I, I, I want to. Do- so I don't know if this is something. Maybe we can incorporate. Maybe we can divide episode eight between the trees and um, you know, and the Feanturi, Um, you know, that it's you know Irmo and Namo, and then and and bringing Nienna into Nienna, of course, obviously is um, uh, is is heavily involved in the trees, so she would be involved in both subplots right with the trees and with uh with but i don't know what to i don't know what to happen and whether we have time to make it happen in episode seven or not Hmm. maybe we start something and i don't know i was gonna say we start something and it concludes in the next episode subplot wise yeah, is hmm. I don't know how to do this because we're we I get we're not really at the point yet where um where where uh, um, Mandos is doing some serious doomsaying yet. Yeah, no, exactly, um, exactly. Uh, um. And, uh, and yeah, several people are asking about the tapestries. Yes, I think the tapestries do tell the future and the past, but they're not just representative. They're like, that is, they're, they're not just representational. Um, it's not just like snapshot, you know, like, uh, Vire's weavings are not a storyboard of history. You know, that's not what her weavings are. Um, her weavings, you know, her insight into the future, I mean, she's not, we know that the, the Valar don't, you know, they, because of the music, they have some insight and that's what her, the element of her, you know, her power, the part of the mind of, of, of Iluvatar that she has is sort of seeing the big picture, right? It's sort of insight into what the music meant. Um, but she doesn't know episode by episode what's going to happen in the future. It's not like she's actually seen snapshot visions of the future and what's going to happen. Um, so, uh, so again, it's, it's not like, the tapestries of Vire simply contain a whole bunch of spoilers. Um, they're not, uh, Timothy, they're not deliberately cryptic in the way that the Delphic oracles are deliberately cryptic, um, but they require interpretation. I would see them as being as uh, sort of largely symbolic um, uh, rather than purely representational. Um, but um, anyway, anyway, um, so, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, I feel like we have the essence of episode seven. I just can't tell whether or not we still have, cause I mean, basically all we've described as far as what's actually happening is we begin the episode with, um, oh, well, easy. Hang on a second. Cause there's something we haven't talked about. The frame. I want to come back to the frame. If we spend a little bit more time in the frame in this episode, yeah. then that might enable us to have like the story be purely right. focused on the on the on the big council. Hmm. 
Because uh, so yeah, frame. Okay, I want to come back to the because we haven't done the frame in weeks, which I think is fine. But I think that in this particular, yeah, in this part, we've kind of abandoned it the last few episodes. We have, which I think is fine because the momentum of the story that we've been telling from episode certainly like episode four, five, and six, Melkor's arrival, um, the the building of the lamps slash the Tolkas Nessa Ungoliant story, and the uh, the destruction of the lamps. Um, that's that that's all been one kind of one one story with a lot of momentum, and I think it's great to have the have us be very frame light during those times. But I think that the next few episodes are, are going to be really important frame episodes because I think we're gonna we're, we should rely on them more because this is the portion of season one. Um, I mean, other than the first few episodes where things chronologically were a lot sketchier. Um, where like a whole bunch of time is going to pass, right? Um, mm-hmm. So we don't have the same momentum of storyline. What we're going to be showing in the next, you know, counting episode seven in the next, like at, at least through episode eleven or so. I mean, we're going to have four or five episodes in a row, which are going to be episodic, right? Snippets of uh, stuff that happens here and there during this time when Valinor has just been established and before the elves come, right? So so we have passage of time happening. Um, you know, so separating those more significantly with the frame seems to me to fit uh, um, uh, pretty pretty significantly there. Um, so um, so here's 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 the thought that I had. Um, I think we have an interesting opportunity to um uh, establish a parallel here again, like we established a parallel between the frame and the story earlier on. Um, I think we can establish the parallel again. Um, here's where I think we need to come back to Gilrine and her tension with Elrond. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, Marie, I absolutely agree. Thorin and company should arrive in the episode with Alley and the Dwarves. Absolutely, um, that should precipitate the whole Alley and the Dwarves story. Um, uh, so, yep, yep, yeah, totally. Um, uh, so, so, here, um, what I was, what I was thinking was, um, I loved, Philip uh, Menzies made a marvelous suggestion, which I absolutely loved in, um, in the, uh, in the discussion boards, um, which was essentially establishing a parallel between the Valar retreating to build Valinor and Rivendell itself. So, you know, Rivendell as safe haven and retreat being deliberately paralleled with Valinor, which, of course, given the way that we're doing it, raises some questions, right? And Gilrein can be the one asking the questions. Gilrein, remember, this is Gilrein, you know, young widow of the husband who died in battle while Elrond is sitting here cooling his heels in his nice little elvish paradise, right? Right. Um, I would have to think that in Gilrein's mind, 
um, there is still at least a little bit of, and where were you when my husband was killed, right? Like, okay, yes, you have been, you have supported our people and you are a friend to the Dunedain. But, like, seriously, what have you done for us lately? Why is it that the Dunedain are out there living, you know, living hard and in conflict and in, and taking the fight to the enemy and you're sitting here, you know, on your finely tailored elvish butt doing nothing? That's actually right? a really good question. <laughs> I mean, how does Elrond answer that question? That's a really good question. Right. Well, I think, I think that the answer to the question is basically I'm doing more than you understand, right? Like, first of all, like, I've got a ring of power here, and I am exerting my influence, you know, my will through the ring of power, and, like, you wouldn't even want to see what the North would look like if I weren't sitting here on my elvish butt yeah. with my ring of power, right? Okay, so, like, it's well, not about... His sons? his sons are fighting with him. His sons are fighting, but basically it's like, remember Goadriel saying, like, it is, f- for it is not only by, you know, the right. the, 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 the strings of elvish bows and everything that 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 this land is defended right um yeah elrond would basically say the same thing like yeah i am working i'm working hard in fact to establish peace in the north i'm just not out there fighting right no i'm not out there fighting i'm i'm fighting in my own way i I look at the different perspective of the races right Right. Conversation with. Right. We, yeah. So, yeah. so you're drawing a parallel then with the establishment of Valinor. Yeah, with the establishment of Valinor. So Gilrein can be basically questioning, like, is Rivendell a good idea? You know, just as Val, you know, the, just as there's the question of like, is Valinor good? Is Valinor in self-indulgence? Is Valinor escapism? You know, is Valinor, you know, sort of an act of denial? Um, or merely a retreat, uh, rather than a constructive step forward in in the sort so of stewardship then, of the world. So there's a sense in which there's a sense then in which um, that carries the implicit judgment that at the end that that at the end of the day it's not quite right or it's flawed. Well, or flawed, we yeah. or we or we or we at the end of the day we show that actually there it's not a parallel. The Rivendell yeah. is not a parallel. Right, I mean, but it, but we can it, suggest but it really differences. Is, right? I mean, right, there, right. there is a there parallel. Yeah, there is a parallel. It's not the same, right? Um, right, that's what I mean. It's like, you know, it seems to be a, a haven and an escape, but in, actually at the end of the day, it's not a haven and escape. You know, Or there is, it's not it only a haven and escape. But it, right, but it, none right. the, but it nonetheless... It nonetheless arises from flawed intentions, right? Like this is getting at the underlying atten- uh, attention yeah. of the elves and the rings of, of power the elves that and conservation. Yeah, yes. yeah, that they that good things come of what they do, but at the end of the day, it's still it it comes from this desire to preserve things um, uh, and to right. control them. Harmony, right. yeah, harmony, yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's, it's 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 it's. I'm on board with that. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think the parallel, I mean, we don't want to make it sound like it's exactly the same on a different scale, but it is parallel. And I think it can yeah. really, it can really work as parallel. Um, and even, even that sense, even basically Elrond's ultimate response, you know, Elrond's like, you know, hey man, I'm hard at work. Just because you don't see the ways in which I'm hard at work doesn't mean I'm not hard at work, right? Um, Elrond's response could be fine, but don't overreach your quest for harmony or something like that, you know, or, or... Yeah, well, I mean, and thinking also of, like, the way that that, the way that it parallels with the Valar as well, right? I mean, like, Gilrein could also say, like, you know, oh, yeah, like, you know, the Valar pack themselves off, and they, you know, because, you know, again, it's the whole Athrobeth thing, right? It's it's the, 
it's the, the Andreth element, right? They're like, well, okay, what have the Valar done for us lately, right? You know, they seem to have left Middle Earth behind, and they don't seem to, to to care a fig about humans, right? You know, they might take care of the elves, but what have they ever done for the humans over there in their in their you know magical blessed realm? And they don't care about us, and they don't do anything for us. Well, the answer is the same as the answer would be to Gil Ryan. No, they are doing stuff. You, you don't see it. Just, just because they don't physically come over and beat the crap out of your enemies doesn't mean they're not doing anything, right? Um, so The one thing I would want to make sure we do, and I think it's for sure doable, is to make sure we don't give any kind of uh, uh, sign that we're having Gil Ryan represent the Melkor side of the... No, no, exactly, exactly. Yeah, she's not, she's not sort of the bad guy here, but, but she can, in, in a sense, though. I mean, what she, we she are lays the groundwork for sympathy with him. Exactly, exactly. We are, yeah. we are wanting our viewers to emerge from that debate, seeing, as we were saying earlier on, the Valar are doing the wrong thing for the right reasons, and Melkor is doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. And she can basically be a way to sort of show that. You know, what she emphasizes, essentially, is the fact that they've done the wrong thing. I mean, basically, I, I, I just feel that the opportunity, like the, the sort of conflict between Gilrein and Elrond, provides us with an opportunity yes. to, to really emphasize uh, uh, to basically give give our viewers another angle on the on this really complex moral issue that we're trying to great. paint here. Um, that's a great idea. Uh, yeah, and, and Mark absolutely. She, uh, Mark Ingram says there a way Gil Ryan can be somewhat right and not just selfish. Absolutely, she is right. The only problem is that she doesn't see the whole picture, um, right, and yes. she doesn't understand all of what's going on. Um, Which is the Andreth piece of it. The Andreth thing, exactly, exactly. Um, but again, like Andreth, there are in fact things. It's not just that Gilrine is all ignorant and Elrond is the one who knows. <laughs> Elrond can get all huffy. He can like play the age card. And say, "Hey, I was at the last. I was on Daggerlag. Come on, lady." <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But again, like there. like Andreth, Gilrine cannot buy that. Right. I mean, basically, her her emphasis. You know, if if he does play the age card, you know, if if Elrond is like, I have seen many thousands of years, of, and right. she can be, and, and she can say yes, and that's exactly what has uh, made you so disconnected from what's really happening in the world. Yeah, um, oh, that's cool. You know, so yeah. because yeah, I mean that that's totally what Andreth would say, <laughs> right? Um, uh, would say like, yeah, okay, you've gained a lot of wisdom and that's great, but, uh, but no, it also means that to you, Mr. I've been around for thousands and thousands of years, yeah, you can sit here and be like, well, I gotta, th- I gotta think of the big picture, right? But what looking at the big picture means is, so what, so you don't care about this generation of men who is being slaughtered, right? right? Um, because you're looking at the big picture? Um, you know, you're out of touch, dude. <laughs> right? Like the, the people, there are people dying right now. Anyway, so, and and again, in that debate, the point is that both of them are right and both of them are wrong, right? I mean, that the, there are there are there are um, you know, they both have they both have, and it's the same thing with Andreth and Finrod in in the Athrobeth. Neither one of them is wrong and the other one right, uh, and that's the thing that I find so beautiful. Uh, well, one of the things I find so beautiful about that whole piece is that neither Andreth nor Finrod are right and the other one wrong, and but both of them come to a greater wisdom through their discussion. Like, by by learning from each other, by having this discussion, um, they both gain 
in wisdom. And I think that we can really show that with Elrond and Gilrod. I mean, it's challenging. Um, it's almost actually kind of radical to be like, whoa, Elrond changes. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. he's, 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 he's like, uh, you know, at least Elrond in the third age is, is really static, right? I mean, at least it's tempting to see him as really static. You know, this is actually kind of an interesting thing about um, that elves do take the long view, but but the the, the fortunes of Middle Earth turn on very short time spans. You yes. Know, you think of the War of the Ring, for example. So it, it would be very easy for for an elf like Elrond to overlook very important things because he's taking this long view. It's a very interesting, yes. you know, uh, point. Um, but you know, you know we could fact, even. Ha- I think there could be there are mistakes that were made that caused the War of the Ring to happen because of that. Yes, um, and maybe the thing that Elrond comes to appreciate, right? Elrond's insight that uh, you know small hands do them because they must. Mm-hmm. This is an insight that he gains over time, and we could right. even show that, like his experience with with raising Aragorn and and living with Gilrein has helped to like remind him of these things mm-hmm. and has really informed that, that the wisdom That's that he right. shows at the council of Elrond with Frodo is in part something that he has been gaining, you know, that, that has been right. informed even just in this last generation by, by wow, Gilrine and Elrond and, and, and Aragorn. Wow. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Now the thing we have, we're, we're like way, we've like run out of time ages ago, but one of the things about this that we can actually pick up is, you know, we talked a little earlier about do we have time for a subplot, you know, in this episode. Now we're talking about the frame narrative, which this needs some time yes. in the episode yes. to develop. So we might want to revisit this when we come back next time. Yeah. So I'm thinking no. I mean, yeah, we can, we can, uh, we can. I think this is the subplot. This yeah, is the subplot I, I agree. I agree. More increasingly, I'm thinking frame yeah. plus the debate will give us plenty. We can, we can yeah, end with some visual glimpses of Valinor. Yeah. End of Tumna. Yeah, and then next. And then next episode, we do the trees and, and, and some other development of Valar characters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. Good. All right. So, questions for next time. Um, <laughs> uh, questions for next time are... Um, uh, well, I, I mean, I, I want to think about the growth of the trees. The growth of the trees is such a big moment that... I think we have to be careful not to just treat the 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 awakening of the trees like it's its own self-explanatory event. In other words, we need to be thinking about the you know the question is what are the th- what themes are are we going to connect explicitly with the growth of the trees? How is the growth of the trees going to fit into this story and the themes that we've been developing? Okay, so we have to make sure that the growth of the trees really fits within this world that we're developing and not just make it a spectacle right mm-hmm. so that's my first question what um, how how should we contextualize the trees um, in the context uh, you know in, in, in the context of our, of our themes and, and and discussions my second question how do we handle Melkor's reaction to the trees what is Melkor thinking when the trees are being made and what do others see about what he's thinking? Uh, you know, what kind of external evidence is, you know, so how does he respond? How do we, you know, what do, do, do we, do we, do we include any actual response from him? Um, uh, in, w- with the, the trees. So that's my second question. How does Melkor react to the awakening of the trees? 
Um, and then my third question, I, I guess, is back to my, uh, so the, the, the vague concepts that I was suggesting about, uh, about Namo, Irmo, and Niena. Um, can, can we, can anybody, th- can we think of a plot? Can we think of a story so that we could divide episode, uh, what's the next one? Episode eight between, um, between the Feanturi and the trees, um, and ways in which we can kind of make that sort of fit, uh, together. Um, anyway, I, um, I, I, that's, that's, those are my main questions for next time. So, um, and if, 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 and if you, you have other ideas about other subplots that don't, we don't have to do my idea with Irmo and Namo and Niena, it could be something else entirely if people have other suggestions that nobody's thought of yet. Um, so I don't want to make sure to leave the door open for that too, but, um, but so those are the big questions leading into next time and that I would love to have the feedback from you guys. Uh, and again, just thanks again to everybody who's been working on the discussion board. So much good stuff. I can't even tell you how much of my, how much of my own thinking is stimulated by your discussions yeah. on the discussion board. Some of the things that, um, you know, I, I, I go there and I find that, you know, you guys are, I mean, as you will tell by some of the overlap, you know, those of you who have been involved with the discussion boards, you'll be able to see in the overlap that, you know, many of you guys are already thinking about things that I, you know, I, I go and I find you guys are already thinking things I've been thinking also, and we're really thinking along similar lines, some places where you guys are suggesting things that I hadn't thought of, um, and my two favorite things from the last two episodes, you know, the idea of the fall of the Balrogs with the destruction of the lamps, the idea of the parallel between Rivendell and Valinor, like, that is awesome, awesome material, and I hadn't thought of either one of those things, and I don't think I would have right away. So, um, uh, so just, yeah, keep up the great work on the discussion boards, everybody. Uh, so that's been great. Any, any final thoughts from you guys before we, uh, before we... No, this was great. Finish this was up? Great. And I just want to echo Corey's, I just want to echo Corey's statement of you guys really trigger so much thinking for us from your discussions, so keep it, keep it up, because that's really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Dave? 100% agree. <laughs> really, really, this is this is the listener's adaptation, not ours. Yes, it is. Yes, yeah. yes. I've been really course, enjoying the sort of the community aspect of it. Being the executive producers, we make decisions, you know. That's right. And, and we'll take all the credit. And, and, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But hey, you guys are great. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um... Well, thanks everybody. Um, uh, then we will sign off for next time and look forward to, uh, uh, to the trees and the development of the Valinorian plots next time. And thank you guys so much for providing this marvelous environment in which we can talk about fun, happy, positive, creative things. Um, I totally feel better, uh, and can put last night's episode entirely behind me now. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks everybody. So I, I, we appreciate it as always. Thanks for listening and Godspeed.